Well, good evening, everyone, and a very warm welcome to the LSC. Our event tonight, uh, More Tales of the Two James, uh, will explore the relations between psychology and fiction through the work of the two brothers, William and Henry. Uh, some of you might have been with us before because we started these conversations last year during the Literary Festival here, uh, discussing mainly uh, the brothers' insights into self-reflection in the stream of consciousness. Tonight, we'll focus on religion and the supernatural, looking at how each brother explored these issues through very different means, namely psychology, in literature. Uh, well, my name is Sandra Jovcelovic. I'm a professor of social psychology here at the LSC. And with me in the panel are Henry and William. Uh, transubstantiated, if I can say, uh, into two more contemporary and very distinguished academics, Philip and Alex. Philip Horn is professor of English at University College London, and Harry James is his central interest. He has served as the president of the International Harry James Society and is currently series editor of the Penguin Classics Harry James and the founding general editor of the Cambridge University Press edition of the complete fiction of... Harry James, planned 30 volumes? Uh, 35 volumes. 35 <laughs> volumes, there you go. So uh, he will be editing two volumes himself, I think The Golden Bowl and The Notebooks. And he's also completing a book on the relationship between Henry James and Theodore Roosevelt in his meantime. So this evening, Philip will be Henry himself. Alex uh, is a lecturer in social psychology here at the LSC, uh, and his research focuses on divergence uh, on human perspectives. He is an expert in the psychology of George Her Herbert Mead and William James, and his latest book is Becoming Other. So the way we're going to play this is as follows. We're going to have a conversation between Henry and William. They are going to read from each other's work, and they are going to discuss each other's work. And we plan to do this for the first part of the evening. And then we're going to open to the audience, and we're going to take questions from you. So over to you, Henry. Uh, thank you. I'm, I'm not going to pretend to be Henry James oh. completely <laughs> <I'm afraid. laughs> sorry partly because we don't know how Henry James spoke so I don't know what accent um, he, he would have spoken with um, I, I thought I'd just uh, for, for anyone who's not uh, familiar with the Jameses give a, a little sketch of the um, family background um, that the James family was uh, were well they were from Albany and New York uh, Henry was born in New York City in 1843 a year after William um, their grandfather was, I think, the sixth richest man in America um, early in the 19th century, but uh, that fortune had been somewhat uh, whittled away. He had 13 children, none of whom did a stroke of work. Uh, and then um, uh, Henry James Sr., who was his uh, son, who was a bit of a ne'er-do-well, 
um, and was in dispute with his father, who was a strict Presbyterian, um, uh, had um, had a, a good number of children. There were, there were five uh, James children: uh, William the eldest, then Henry, uh, then Wilkinson. Uh, then Robertson and then Alice. I think that's the correct order. Somebody may correct me. Uh, Alice, uh, being the only girl, had a very rough time. Uh, she was kept at home. She didn't have many of the educational advantages, but she had uh, quite a lot of the, a lot of the family gifts uh, and her diaries uh, and letters um, are remarkable pieces of writing. I mean, she's uh, well worth. Um, uh, study on her own. Um, Henry James Senior. Uh, he went to th- uh, theological college, uh, but um, was always rather restless. Um, the uh, one of the great incidents of his youth was that he was playing um, a rather dangerous game uh, with a flaming ball of pitch, uh, and it, um, he. he he kicked it, and this flaming ball set fire to his leg, which was uh, horribly wounded, and he had to have the leg amputated. So he was um, uh, uh, kind of, um, uh, sort of crippled for, for life. Um, he also had a series of spiritual crises, and the great uh, spiritual crisis happened, I think, I think it was just after the birth of William and Henry. Uh, it was a Swedenborgian vast station uh, in which um, he uh, had a, suddenly had a powerful, an overwhelming sense of horror at a presence crouching in the room with him. Uh, and as part of his recovery, he discovered Swedenborg uh, and became a, a sort of visionary, um, visionary socialist Christian uh, philosopher. Uh, he also was very preoccupied, not having a profession, with the education of the, the children. Uh, and he felt they could get a better sensuous education, as he called it, in Europe uh, than in America. So the James family shuttled back and forth between uh, Europe and America. They went to schools in France, Switzerland, Germany. They had tutors. Uh, they also went to school in New York. Um, so it was very unsettled as a uh, an upbringing, but but uh, I, th- I think it, in, in many ways you can see it as um, uh, the thing that that, that formed uh, William and Henry in particular. Um, uh, and um, although Henry James Senior had very pronounced religious views, uh, I mean he was um, always a dissident, even within the Swedenborgian, the small group of Swedenborgians, he was constantly denouncing other Swedenborgians. Um, in one way or another. Um, he encouraged the uh, James uh, children to um, have a liberal view of religion, uh, very unlike their, most of their peers. Uh, and so this is, this is a passage from Henry James's late autobiography, written in his late style, I should warn you, um, uh, about the um, religious education um, of the James brothers. Um, uh, and uh, they were very conscious that their schoolmates were constantly saying, what church do you, go to, do you belong to? Uh, everybody belonged to a church, but they didn't belong to a church. They belonged to all churches. That was Henry James Sr.'s uh, way. It was an enforced liberalism and, and pluralism, really. So, our young liberty in respect to church going was absolute. And we might range at will through the great city, New York, from one place of worship and one form of faith to another, or might on occasion ignore them all equally, which is what we mainly did. 
go forth hand in hand into the sunshine, uh, we sampled in modern phrase a small unprejudiced inquirers obeying their inspiration, any resort of any congregation detected by us. Doing so, I make out, moreover, with a sense of earnest provision for any contemporary challenge. What church do you go to? The challenge took, in childish circles, that searching form. Of the form it took among our elders, my impression is more vague. To which I must add that as well as our fending in this fashion for ourselves, uh, sorry, to which I must add as well that our fending in this fashion for ourselves didn't so prepare us for invidious remark, remark I mean upon our pewless state, which involved to my imagination much the same discredit that a houseless or a cookless would have done as to hush in my breast the appeal to our parents, not for religious instruction, of which we had plenty and of the most charming and familiar, but simply for instruction, a very different thing, as to where we should say we went in our world under cold scrutiny or just derisive comment. Uh, so their, their world is the world of other children who are just saying, what church do you belong to? And um, uh, th- for them, it's a social indignity. It's like having, not, having a ha- not having a house or a cook. Um, It was colder than any criticism, I recall, to hear our father reply that we could plead nothing less than the whole privilege of Christendom, and that there was no communion, even that of the Catholics, even that of the Jews, even that of the Swedenborgians, from which we need find ourselves excluded. With the freedom we enjoyed, our dilemma clearly amused him. It would have been impossible, he affirmed, to be theologically more en règle, in order. Uh, so they, they, they're fully prepared um, on the religious front, as far as their father is concerned, but for them it's a constant humiliation. They're being taunted by their uh, peers. Um, and I think this produced a, um, uh, an interesting relation to religion for both Henry and William. And uh, I thought I'd read you a very short extract from a letter... Henry wrote in 1873 to Charles Eliot Norton, a uh, major cultural figure in America, an older figure than uh, Henry, um, who was moving with the times, had lost his faith, um, uh, and so on, and had written to that effect uh, to, to Henry. So th- this is Henry to William, and this is a letter written from Rome. Uh, Henry, continu- the census education that Henry James Sr. had given the Jameses, uh, it was a, uh, I think James talk, talks about it as a kind of poison uh, in his veins that he had to go back to Europe. So um, that's one of the reasons Henry settled in Europe, uh, unlike William. Uh, so this is just Henry to, Henry to Charles Eliot Norton. As to Christianity and its old, old applications being exhausted, civilization, good and bad alike, seems to be certainly leaving it pretty well out of account. But the religious passion has always struck me as the strongest of man's heart. And when one thinks of the scanty fare, judged by our usual standards, on which it is always fed, and of the nevertheless powerful current continually setting towards all religious hypotheses, it is hard not to believe that some application of the supernatural idea should not be an essential part of our life. I don't know how common the feeling is, but I'm conscious of making a great allowance to the questions agitated by religion in feeling that conclusions and decisions about them are tolerably idle. Uh, And at this point, I'll hand over to... William. Alex. Thank you, Henry. Um, What I find is very interesting here in in the history of the brothers is this uh, movement, geographic movement, between Europe and America and within 
uh, those two continents, and also moving between religious organizations and schools. They move between a lot of schools. And uh, this sort of physical uprooting and uh, distanciation or breaking connections sort of seems to create a psychological liberation in some way, which uh, the more I've been reading, I've been thinking underlies both brothers, this sort of slight distanciation, as we just saw there, from Christianity. They sort of appeal, it appeals to them, but there's also a distance, and, and they sort of are on the edge of a lot of things, which gives them um, a lot of insight, but critical distance. And I, I, I think for, for William James, this in his later work, this matures into his pragmatism. So he, he develops a sort of a philosophy, or is part of a philosophy of pragmatism, which is very pluralistic. Um, and I'm going to, to read a bit here about how he characterizes rationalists. And rationalists are, he would see, quite like religious characters um, who believe in an essential truth. And then we have the empiricists who are all concerned with the empirical details. And he puts pragmatism in the middle. And he is a pragmatist, this sort of plurality, open to the plurality of the world. So he's discussing rationalism and pragmatism first. And first, let me say, it is impossible not to see a temperamental difference at work in the choice of sides, whether you're a rationalist or a pragmatist. The rationalist mind, radically taken, is of a doctrinaire and authoritative complexion. The phrase, must be, is ever on its lips. The belly band of this universe must be tight. The radical pragmatist, on the other hand, is happy-go-lucky, anarchistic sort of creature. If he had to live in a tub like Diogenes, he wouldn't mind at all if the hoops were loose and the staves let in the sun. Now, the idea of this loose universe, this, this pragmatist conception, affects your typical rationalist in much the same way as freedom of the press might affect a veteran official of the Russian Bureau of Censorship or simplified spelling, I think he means American spelling, I'm not sure, uh, <laughs> might affect an elderly schoolmistress. It affects him as a swarm of Protestant sects affects a papist onlooker. It appears as a backboneless and devoid of principle, as opportunism in politics appears to be old-fashioned French legitimacy or to a fanatical believer in the divine right of the people. So this sort of essentialism that there needs to be a truth is um, appalled by the pragmatism, by the happy-go-lucky pragmatism. And that's what James has, this sort of openness, not, not, not full commitment, but willing to, to go along with it. Um, and in contrast to both the pragmatist and the rationalist, we have uh, what William James calls the tough-minded. And these are the empiricists. The tough-minded are the men whose alpha and omega are facts. Behind the bare phenomenal facts, as my tough-minded old friend Chaucer Wright, the great Harvard empiricist of my youth, used to say, there is nothing behind the facts. When a rationalist insists that behind the facts there must be ground of the facts or the possibility of the facts, some truth which gave rise to the facts, the tougher empiricist accuse him of taking the mere name and nature of a fact and clamping it behind the fact so as to duplicate the entity that makes it possible or is seen to make it possible. 
This is like saying that cyanide of potassium kills because it is a poison, or that it is so cold tonight because it is winter. So this is the rationalist looking for something behind which does the work, whereas the empiricist is caught up in the small details. And what I'd say here is that between the sort of absolute truths of rationalism and the minute details of empiricism, there is this pragmatic stance which is willing to try everything, see what works, and explore the universe in a kind of open-ended and slightly playful way, which I think Henry James, although he, I don't think he ever said he was a pragmatist, but I'm increasingly, as I read Henry James, finding this tolerance of ambiguity in his writing. Yeah, he did say, um, when he read William James's pragmatism, that he's lost in amazement at the way in which all his life he's unconsciously pragmatized. So, <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, so he, yeah, he signed off. Um, now, one of the ways in which we see this, so, so the, for James, uh, pragmatism lets him be a scientist. He's a Darwinian scientist. He's a very convinced Darwinian, um, and he would defend it on pragmatic grounds that it works as a system of explanation. But pragmatism also leads to some radical conclusions um, that you should be willing to take on board and explore any belief if it works for your purposes. Now, your purposes can be diverse. Um, And William James was always kind of encouraged, I think, to explore the beyond, the narrow empiricism. And we see this in his uh, exploration of seances. So here we get more into the spiritual dimension. And William James never gave up, I think, Mm. on the possibility of a spiritual, that is, sort of presences of the dead speaking through mediums. Uh, You have... Uh, uh, Yes. Um, This is is not a well-known part of William James's oeuvre, but this volume, William James on Psychical Research, contains a lot of papers that uh, William James wrote. Uh, There was one particular medium, Mrs. Piper, uh, who, for decades he attended the seances of uh, and uh, in a way in, in the spirit of I mean William James's account idea of science was that it would uh, as it were the scientific method should be applied to everything and should be open and only when you you can't dismiss the supernatural the possibility of the supernatural you have to so, so careful documentation uh, he was they were constantly skeptical um, they were looking for some uh, absolutely undeniable evidence of supernatural activity uh, amid all the fakery. Um, so, and, and evidence, just because you haven't got evidence of spirit mediums doesn't mean they don't exist, he would say. Hmm. You have to keep looking. So, uh, he goes to many seances and he's not convinced by them and so on, and then he goes to the perfect seance. This is from 1909. On December the 3rd, he goes to a sounds, when the ring revolved, so there was a ring on the table, and it starts to move, revolved, the conditions of observation were perfect. The light from the electric chandelier just overhead being brilliant, and the phenomena being slow enough, and often enough repeated, to leave my own, my own mind in no doubt at the time as to what was witnessed. I was quite convinced that I saw that no hand was on the ring while it was moving. The maximum length of its path under these circumstances was fully six inches. 
With this conviction that I saw all there was to see, I have to confess that I am surprised that the phenomena affected me emotionally so little. I may add, as a psychological fact, that now, after four days' interval, my mind seems strongly inclined not to count the observation, as if it were too exceptional to have been probable. I have only once before seen an object moved paradoxically, and then the conditions were unsatisfactory. But I have supposed that if I could once see the same thing satisfactorily, the levy by which the scientific opinion protects nature would be cracked for me, and I should be as one watching an incipient overflow of the Mississippi, of the supernatural into the fields of orthodox culture. So this is the... Um, He's sort of he's waiting for this moment of conversion. He, he wants to believe, but he hasn't got the evidence. And now he has the evidence, but he doesn't believe. <laughs> um, and I find, however, that I look on nature with unaltered eyes today, and that my orthodox habits tend to extrude this would-be levy breaker. It forms too much of an exception. So he actually kind of dismisses his empirical uh, experience here, um, but there is this longing for something more. Longing, there's all this research, and it builds up to this, and he finds this evidence of something more, but it doesn't do what he wants, which is to lead to this sort of almost religious conversion mm. into in, mm. to believe, because he's been in this state of uh, ambivalence. But I think um, this is, you'll see in here, a very sort of scientific and descriptive language of seances, you know, the ring moved six inches and the, the light was good and so on. Uh, oh. And now we move into Henry James's account of a seance with a very different language. Yes. Uh, this is going back to 1886, so that's 1909. To, uh, this, this is a period of um, uh, when William James is first uh, involved with psychical uh, research, and I'm, I'm, he must be thinking of William uh, when he writes The Bostonians, uh, and this is a well-known passage about um, the mother of the heroine, uh, Mrs. Tarrant. Uh, the heroine comes from uh, it, the novel The Bostonians, for those who don't know it, is, is really um, uh, it's set in the early 1870s. It's, it's about the post-Civil War period of, uh, in which abolitionism turned into feminism and various kinds of um, uh, radicalism. Uh, and um, the, uh, it's set in the world of uh, what he calls, I think, humanitary bohemia. Um, so vegetarianism. Uh, also, I mean, there are people with, who are obsessed with water cures, uh, people who won't wear, uh, who'll only wear cotton even in the New England winter and probably don't last very long, um, and, and so on. So, so it's, it's that world. Um, his hero, though, is a southerner, Basil Ransom, who uh, has reactionary views, who fought in the Civil War, who's a cousin of uh, one of these um, the, the, uh, reformers in, in Boston. Um, uh, and the heroine comes from this kind of underworld of, um, in which hydropathy, water cures, and mesmerism, and spiritual healing, and so on. They're all uh, going on. Um, uh, and she comes from uh, a family which is a sort of uh, aristocracy of the radical world. The Greenstreets, uh, Abraham Greenstreet, had been a great abolitionist. They're respectable. Uh, but she marries Celia Tarrant, who's... Um, 
uh, not respectable. Uh, and he's, even within this radical world where everybody is supposed to be equal, um, they don't really like Sila, they don't really approve of Sila Tarrant, and she feels that she's gone down in the world. One of the ways in which she's gone down in the world is that when he's uh, a medium, uh, she's helped him with some of the effect, supernatural effects uh, behind the scenes. Uh, so, um, uh, this is great comic writing, really, I think. Uh, of course, a woman who had had the bad taste to marry Sela Tarrant would not have been likely under any circumstances to possess a very straight judgment. But there is no doubt that this poor lady had grown dreadfully limp. She had blinked and compromised and shuffled. She asked herself whether, after all, it was any more than natural that she should have wanted to help her husband in those exciting days of his mediumship when the table sometimes wouldn't rise from the ground, the sofa wouldn't float through the air, and the soft hand of a loved one was not so alert as it might have been to visit the circle. Mrs. Tarrant's hand was soft enough for the most supernatural effect, and she consoled her conscience on such occasions by reflecting that she ministered to a belief in immortality. She was glad somehow for Rena's sake, uh, Rena is her daughter, the, the heroine of the novel, that they had emerged from the space, that they had emerged from the phase of spirit intercourse. Celia Tarrant has stopped being a medium. Um, her ambition for her daughter took another form than desiring that she too should minister to a belief in immortality. Yet among Mrs. Tarrant's multifarious memories, these reminiscences of the darkened room, the waiting circle, the little taps on table and wall, the little touches on cheek and foot, the music in the air, the rain of flowers, the sense of something mysteriously flitting, were most tenderly cherished. She hated her husband for having magnetised her so that she consented to certain things and even did them, the thought of which today would suddenly make her face burn. Hated him for the manner in which somehow, as she felt, he had lowered her social tone. Yet at the same time she admired him for an impudence so consummate that it had ended in the face of mortifications, exposures, failures, all the misery of a hand-to-mouth existence by imposing itself on her as a kind of infallibility. She knew he was an awful humbug, and yet her knowledge had this imperfection that he had never confessed it, a fact that was really grand when one thought of his opportunities for doing so. He had never allowed that he wasn't straight. The pair had so often been in the position of the two augurs behind the altar, and yet he had never given her a glance that the whole circle mightn't have observed. Even in the privacy of domestic intercourse, he had phrases, excuses, explanations, ways of putting things, which, as she felt, were too sublime for just herself. They were pitched as Sela's nature was pitched, altogether in the key of public life. Uh, so very satirical as a view of the world of mediums. Um, and that, uh, I think William, in his writings on psychical research, does, does have that. And maybe that's why, even when he sees, he can't quite believe... Um, if, if I could just add a little, yes. I, I, I love this because um, so here, in a sense, Henry James hasn't observed anything. There's mm. no empiricism here. There's no science. There's a story, but the story makes it believable how uh, people who claim to be mediums can do this in actually convincing themselves almost mm. a couple, a married couple, each supporting the other to pretend to be mediums and never talking about the fact that they're doing it. It's this mm. kind of, and it's somehow believable as you read the whole, the, the longer mm. story. Um, and knowing, you see, that's from a sort of 
scientific point of view, it's not just about observing the ring moving. You know, it's about mm. understanding a social world in which there's rewards for people being mm. being mediums and how they can convince themselves they're mediums, mm. and that kind of undermines the whole edifice. It becomes mm. plausible that people are fake, even mm. without knowing that they're fake. And so it's kind of it's a very powerful undermining without any evidence, I, and I yes. find that intriguing. It's it's the the power of a good story to, mm. to make it not believable somehow. Yes, and her justifying it by thinking that she's ministering to a belief in yeah. immortality, yeah. which yeah. must be a good thing. Yes, we thought we'd go now to... Um, uh, Sandra mentioned that I'm editing Henry James's notebooks, um, and, and, uh, which are extremely interesting. He kept them for most of his career uh, and jotted down ideas and developed ideas, uh, and you see his um, imagination in, uh, in, in, in progress, uh, really. And, and quite often, surprisingly often, he gets his ideas from William or he refers to William. William's conversation inspires him in some way. Uh, and so this is um, uh, one idea that, that he gets from talking to, to William, both from an anecdote and from William's comment about it. Uh, so this is 1901. Uh, William, I think, is on the way to or from Germany for Nauheim uh, for a, a cure for his heart condition. Um, uh, but staying with Henry and Rye in Sussex. An idea, perhaps a first-rate one, seems to me to reside in passing allusion made this PM by William to general attitude observed by Mrs. W. of Boston to her late husband. He is just dead. He was insignificant, common, inferior, and she was, well, all that one knows. She could scarcely bear it of him, bear above all the way he gave away, as it were, their earlier time, when he was good enough for her, was a possible match. She had always stuck to him and done the letter of her duty by him, while disliking him, and ashamed of him, and above all, while showing that she was. My story seemed struck out in one of the small quick flashes in which such things come, when William, speaking of these things, said, Ah, the mistake in such a case of the American sort of honnête femme tradition, honest woman tradition. Better for her, surely, to have left him, to have gone her way, that is, as it were, not to have been faithful, have been perpetually exemplary and, as it were, exasperated. These were perhaps not his exact words, but such was the query he threw off. On the spot, it suggested to me a little novel of American types and manners, following pretty well the facts or appearances of the W case. Yes. So, so that was 1901, which is actually just after then uh, William James is doing his Varieties of Religious Experience mm. in Edinburgh. Um, so the Varieties of Religious Experience is William James's exploration into, quite literally, the experience people have, which they call religious. Uh, he's not arguing really, although he might get a bit confused at times, but he's not really arguing, is there a God or are there spirit mediums? But he's exploring the experiences which people call religious. And these are often conversion experiences. And what interests me as a sort of psychologist looking at this is um, he sets it up in this very kind of simple way that there are two types of people. There are people who are once born, simple, straight people, who uh, have impulses in the world which they fulfill in the world and it's not complicated. 
This is quite a rare type of person. <laughs> and uh, William James is interested in the more complex characters, the twice-born. Uh, now, the twice-born are people who have impulses which go in one direction and impulses which go in another direction, and they get all tangled up. And this is really one of William James's core concerns in his academic career, uh, where he's interested in consciousness as precisely this being subject and object, being two things at the same time. And this is what uh, I think uh, Henry gets a bit from, from William at this point. If you think of the, the notebook just read out. So we have a woman who's doing one thing but thinking another. Yeah? This is a twice-born character. She's in an internal tension. And William James, in the varieties of religious experience, has a case after case of these people who are twice born. They're split, two people together, if you like. And the conversions which he's interested in are meant to be these moments of unification of the self, which, going back to our earlier excerpt, you know, William James was twice born. He believed in religion and he didn't believe in religion. And he wanted an experience to unite Mm -hmm. these selves, but it doesn't happen. But I just want to read to you how uh, William James introduces this concept of the divided self. And he produced that phrase, which uh, R.D. Lang later took up and made a very successful book on. So, uh, the divided self. Some persons are born with an inner constitution which is harmonious and well-balanced from the outset. Their impulses are consistent with one another. Their will follows without trouble the guidance of their intellect. Their passions are not excessive and their lives are little haunted by regrets. Others are oppositely constituted and are so in degrees which may vary from something so slight as to result in a mere odd or whimsical inconsistency to a discordancy of which the consequences may be inconvenient to the extreme. Of the more innocent kinds of heterogeneity, I find a good example in Mrs. Anne Besant's autobiography. So this is him. In the varieties of religious experience, it's a lot of data he brings from other people's autobiographies, and this is one such excerpt. She says, I have ever been the queerest mixture mixture of weakness and strength and have paid heavily for the weakness. As a child, I used to suffer tortures of shyness. And if my shoelace was untied, would feel shamefaced that every eye was fixed on the unlucky string. As a girl, I would shrink away from strangers and think myself unwanted and unliked, so that I was full of eager gratitude to anyone who noticed me kindly as the young mistress of but as the young mistress of a house, I was afraid of my servants and would let careless work pass rather than bear the pain of reproving the ill-doer. However, she says, when I have been lecturing and debating with no lack of spirit on the platform, I have preferred to go without what I wanted at a hotel rather than ring and make the waiter fetch it. Combative on the platform in defense of any cause I cared for, I shrink from quarrel and disapproval in the house. And I'm a coward at heart in private while a good fighter in public. How often have I passed unhappy quarters of an hour screwing up my courage to find fault with some subordinate whom my duty compelled me to reprove? And how often have I jeered myself for a fraud as the doughty platform combatant when shrinking from blame of some lad or lass for doing their work badly? An unkind look or word has availed to make me shrink into myself as a snail into a shell, while on the platform, the opposite makes me, or the opposition makes me speak at my best. So here you have this woman who's 
shy in private and very concerned with what everyone thinks about her and sneak, is shrinking into her shell. But when she's uh, lecturing, when she's debating, when she's on the podium, she's filled with self-confidence. So you get this twice born. She's two characters in one. And this is a real fascination, which I think William James has at the heart of his social psychology, and which has been taken up more recently. And... Um, I think in this story, which Henry has just related, we see that William James's interest in these, how, how someone can be two things at the same time, coming through into Henry James's work. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, to believe. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I think, okay, if I go on, then how. William James himself was twice born. He wants to believe in religion and doesn't believe at the same time because he's a scientist. Um, he wrestles with this a lot during his, his life and he, he comes up with this uh, idea for why he should believe in religion. But it's surprisingly scientific <laughs> sort of account. And he says, We see that religion offers itself a momentous option. We are supposed to gain even now by our belief and to lose by our non-belief a certain vital good. Secondly, religion is a forced option so far as that good goes. We cannot escape the issue by remaining skeptical and waiting for more light because although we do avoid error, in that way, if religion be untrue, we lose the good of religion if it be true just as certainly as if we positively chose to disbelieve. It is as if a man should hesitate indefinitely to ask a certain woman to marry him because he was not perfectly sure that she would prove an angel after he brought her home. Would he not cut himself off from that particular angel possibility as decisively as if he went and married someone else? Skepticism, then, is not avoidance of option. It is an option of a certain particular kind of risk. Um, so there is an account of why you should believe, because um, you don't know what you're missing if you don't. And, and that kind of goes back to that pragmatist attitude that maybe, even regardless of truth with a capital T, maybe you gain good consequences from believing. Now, the experience can be good and rewarding, and you will never know that experience unless you try it. So you can't dismiss it before you've engaged with it. And there he's caught in this kind of bind. Mm. Um, and I think that image that uh, William uses of uh, not um, a man hesitating indefinitely to ask a certain woman to marry him uh, five years later in the notebooks, uh, in fact, immediately after that, um, the passage I read before, where he's in, in conversation with William, uh, he sketches one of his most famous stories, uh, The Beast in the Jungle, um, uh, and I'll, it, it, this is quite nice because it's, it summarises the entire sto story it will spoil the ending for you but, uh, uh, sorry <laughs> uh, I'm going to do it anyway um, meanwhile there is something else a very tiny fantaisie probably in small notion that comes to me of a man haunted by the fear more and more throughout life that something will happen to him. He doesn't quite know what. His life seems safe and ordered. His liabilities and exposures, as a result of the fear, a good deal, curtailed and cut down, so that the years go by and the stroke doesn't fall. Yet, 
it will come, it will still come, he finds himself believing, and indeed saying to someone, some second consciousness in the anecdote. It will even before death, I shan't die without it. Finally, I think it must be he who sees, not the second consciousness. Mustn't indeed the second consciousness be some woman, and it be she who helps him to see. She has always loved him. Yes, that, for the story, pretty. And he, saving, protecting, exempting his life, always really with and for the fear, has never known it. He likes her, talks to her, confides in her, sees her often. La Coutoie, which means keeps her close to him, uh, as to her hidden passion, but never guesses. She, meanwhile, all the time, sees his life as it is. It is to her that he tells his fear. Yes, she is the second consciousness. At first she feels herself for him, his feeling of his fear, and is tender, reassuring, protective. Then she reads, as I say, his real case, and is, though unexpressedly, lucid. The years go by, and she sees the thing not happen. At last, one day, they are somehow, someday, face to face over it, and then she speaks. Quote, it has the great thing you've always lived in dread of, had the foreboding of. It has happened to you. He wonders, when, how, what? What is it? Why? It is that nothing has happened. <laughs> then later on, I think to keep up the prettiness, it must be that he sees, that he understands. She has loved him always, and that might have happened. But it's too late. She's dead. That, I think, at least, he comes to later on, after an interval, after her death. She is dying or ill when she says it. He then doesn't understand, doesn't see, or so far only as to agree with her ruefully that that may, that may very well uh, be it, that nothing has happened. He goes back. She is gone. She is dead. What she has said to him has, in a way, by its truth, created the need for her, made him want her, positively want her more. But she is gone. He has lost her. And then he sees all she has meant. She has loved him. It must come for the reader then, at this moment. With his base safety and shrinkage, he never knew. That was what might have happened. And what has happened is that it didn't. Uh, so it's a, the, the great story, really, about nothing happening. Um, uh, Being a big happening. Yes, yeah, yeah. yes. Which, which is uh, t taking William James's idea about religion. If you don't believe, then you're missing out on a big... Or it, mm. Nothing happens, precisely. Um, I, I, I really like this uh, quote here, because... Um, it's a notebook, so we see Henry James kind of crafting a story or his thoughts mm. behind the story. And um, he, he wants to create a scenario in which this person at the end of his life realizes what's happened. So it's happened, but he hasn't realized. And then the, the, the twist is the, the realization, but nothing changes. It's just a moment of realization. And um, he says here at the end, uh, you know, so he realizes that she has always loved him. But it must come from the reader. So this is him as a novelist trying to craft a stream mm. of consciousness of the reader um, mm. that has this transition moment. And you know, William James was always writing a lot about sort of streams of consciousness and how they change. He's fascinated by how they change. That's what the religious conversion he's always looking for is about, this shift of consciousness which changes meaning and priorities. 
And William James has, I actually think in hindsight when I read this, a surprisingly individualizing account because he looks at just one person and their transition. But if you look here at Henry James, it's a very social account. It comes through her. And he's aware of the second consciousness. So there's a second consciousness, a gaze, um, which transforms the first consciousness. That's something we'll come to with the turn of the screw uh, example later. But a transformation of consciousness brought about by other people is definitely there in Henry James, and it's not actually in William James. What's the... Have we got, do I have... Can I give one... Can I do, do the... There's, I give an example of this. Um, yes. where, okay, so... This is an excerpt, um, which I wasn't going to read, but... Um, Ah, yes, here, okay. So this is William James's account of a transformation. And now you are moving into the language of a scientist, yeah, to try and understand a transformation of consciousness. And he makes it so mundane. He takes away the magic and makes it very individual. The President of the United States, when, with paddle, gun, and fishing rod, he goes camping in the wilderness for a vacation, changes his system of ideas from top to bottom. The presidential anxieties have lapsed into the background entirely. The official habits are replaced by the habits of a son of nature. And those who knew the man only as the strenuous magistrate would not know him for the same person if they saw him as a camper. If now he should never go back, never again suffer political interests to gain domination over him, he would be for practical intents and purposes a permanently transformed being are ordinary alterations of character as we pass from one of our aims to another are not commonly called transformations because each of them is so rapidly succeeded by another in the reverse direction. But whenever one aim grows so stable as to expel definitively its previous rivals from an individual's life, we tend to speak of transformation. So you know, we come in here, it changes our behavior. We leave, we go somewhere else, we have dinner, it changes our behavior. As we move from one circumstance to another, we're undergoing these transformations. And so he sort of, sort of makes it very contextual, yes, but quite individual. It's just the president going off hunting and the changes which ensue, whereas Henry James had this more the role of other people, I think, in that mm. transformation of consciousness. Yeah, and, and that president, of course, is Theodore Roosevelt, <laughs> who had been William James's student at Harvard, uh, and who had also um, uh, attacked Henry James in a political speech in 1884 as the poodle Henry James, um, uh, and denounced him as effeminate and... Uh, uh, and also kind of europhile and all those bad things um, uh, so there's an edge there yes. really um, uh, also William James uh, was the, one of the leaders of the anti-imperialist league uh, following the Spanish-American war which was one of Roosevelt's great projects the, uh, you know, the expansion of the American empire and um, uh, so there's this strange thing where the professor is taking on his former pupil who's now become the president um, quite an interesting situation. And should we now? And now, yes. Okay. Uh, now, uh, yep. Uh, well, the, the turn of the screw uh, is a story that we felt we couldn't. Um, that, that that maybe would seem a bit different in this context. Um, uh, I guess many people here have, uh, have read The Turn of the Screw. Um, this is from early on. This is the first ghost uh, in The Turn of the Screw. Um, 
uh, if you remember, it's set in the 1840s. Um, uh, the heroine, uh, the narrator, the governess, uh, is just in, uh, installed uh, shortly before this at a country house in Essex, uh, a remote country house called Bly, uh, with the two children who are her charges. Uh, there's almost nobody else in the house except the servants and the housekeeper, Mrs. Gross, who's a good soul but uh, illiterate. Um, uh, and she has a, uh, she's been hired by the master who's never named uh, a handsome young uh, youngish um, rich idle uh, character who lives in Harley Street um, and whose condition for her is that she should never bother him with anything she's uh, supposed to take charge although she's only I think 20 uh, in the story so she's very young and experienced Uh, she comes from a country parsonage and she has a fantasy that she's going to please the master. Uh, I think James consciously sets it in the period of Jane Eyre and has the idea that, you know, Jane Eyre and Rochester, that, that the, she has the idea that um, she may uh, somehow please the master. Uh, so she, she, um, uh, this is, she goes walking in the grounds. It was plump one afternoon in the middle of my very hour. The children were tucked away and I'd come out for my stroll. One of the thoughts that, as I don't in the least shrink now from noting, used to be with with me in these wanderings, was that it would be as charming as a charming story suddenly to meet someone. Someone would appear there at the turn of a path and would stand before me and smile and approve. I didn't ask more than that. I only asked that he should know, and the only way to be sure he knew would be to see it and the kind light of it in his handsome face. That was exactly present to me, by which I mean the face was, when, on the first of these occasions, at the end of a long June day, I stopped short on emerging from one of the plantations and coming into view of the house. What arrested me on the spot, and with a shock much greater than any vision had allowed for, was the sense that my imagination had, in a flash, turned real. He did stand there, but high up, beyond the lawn, and at the very top of the tower to which on that first morning little Flora had conducted me. This tower was one of a pair, square, incongruous, crenellated structures that were distinguished for some reason that I could see little difference as the new and the old. They flanked opposite ends of the house and were probably architectural absurdities, redeemed in a measure indeed by not being wholly disengaged nor of a height too pretentious, dating in their gingerbread antiquity from a romantic revival that was already a respectable past. I admired them, had fancies about them, if we could all profit in a degree, especially when they loomed through the dusk, by the grandeur of their actual battlements. Yet it was not at such an elevation that the figure I had so often invoked seemed most in place. It produced in me, this figure, in the clear twilight, I remember, two distinct gasps of emotion, which were sharply the shock of my first and that of my second surprise. My second was a violent perception of the mistake of my first. The man who met my eyes was not the person I had precipitately supposed. There came to me thus a bewilderment of vision, of which, after these years, there is no living view that I can hope to give. An unknown man in a lonely place is a permitted object of fear to a young woman privately bred, and the figure that faced me was, a few few more seconds assured me, as little anyone else, else I knew as it was the image that had been in my mind. I had not seen it in Harley Street. I had not seen it anywhere. The place, moreover, 
in the strangest way in the world, had on the instant, and by the very fact of its appearance, become a solitude. To me at least, making my statement here with a deliberation with which I have never made it, the whole feeling of the moment returns. It was as if, while I took in what I did take in, all the rest of the scene had been stricken with death. I can hear again as I write the intense hush in which the sounds of evening dropped. The rooks stopped cawing in the golden sky, and the friendly hour lost for the minute all its voice. But there was no other change in nature, unless indeed it were a change, that I saw with a stranger sharpness. The gold was still in the sky, the clearness in the air, and the man who looked at me over the battlements was as definite as a picture in a frame. That's how I thought, with extraordinary quickness, of each person that he might have been, and that he was not. We were confronted across our distance quite long enough for me to ask myself with intensity who then he was, and to feel, as an effect of my inability to say, a wonder that in a few instants more became intense. The great question, or one of these, is, afterward I know with regard to certain matters, the question of how long they have lasted. Well, this matter of mine, think what you will of it, lasted while I caught at a dozen possibilities, none of which made a difference for the better that I could see, in the having been in the house, and for how long, above all, a person of whom I was in ignorance. It lasted while I just bridled a little, with the sense that my office demanded that there should be no such ignorance and no such person. It lasted while this visitant, at all events, and there was a touch of the strange freedom, as I remember, in the sign of familiarity of his wearing no hat, seemed to fix me from his position with just the question just the scrutiny through the fading light that his own presence provoked. We were too far apart to call to each other, but there was a moment at which, at shorter range, some challenge between us breaking the hush would have been the right result of our straight mutual stare. He was in one of the angles, the one away from the house, very erect as it struck me, and with both hands on the ledge. So I saw him as I see the letters I form on this page. Then, exactly, after a minute as if to add to the spectacle... He slowly changed his place, passed, looking at me hard all the while, to the opposite corner of the platform. Yes, I had the sharpest sense that during this transit he never took his eyes from me, and I can see at this moment the way his hand, as he went, passed from one of the crenellations to the next. He stopped at the other corner, but less long, and even as he turned away, still markedly fixed me. He turned away. That was all I knew. And that's the end of the chapter. Um, uh, and that is, um, it turns out, the ghost of Peter Quint, or is identified later, let's say, as the ghost of Peter Quint, uh, who was the, uh, who's the manservant of the master and who's been involved with the children at uh, Bly. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to say about that. Um, it's difficult to follow up as well. <laughs> uh, but um, I'll start by ju- just following on where we were. The, to me, this is a very, it's a very dramatic because it's actually a, a narrative of a transformation of consciousness again. So the, there's this uh, lady, and she's moved to this initially unfamiliar environment, and uh, she's settled into it, and, and the, the world is plump, you know, it's charming, and she's imagining nice encounters, and she's, she's feeling quite good about it. And then you get this gaze, this, she sees someone she doesn't expect to see, in a place she doesn't expect to see him, a place which she had begun to think was home. Yeah? 
And suddenly from her new home, there's a gaze coming back out at her. And this changes everything. You get this transformation of, of uh, consciousness. So whereas William James had been trying to sort of talk about how consciousness changes and theorize it, here it just sort of happens. Um, and you see the style change and the, it gets sort of quicker and, and disjointed and, and you get this sort of, the, you know, the gold was still in the sky, the clearness still in the air, the world hasn't changed, but the experience transforms um, as she goes through the dozen possibilities of what might have happened, each one adding to the kind of mystery and then deepening the transformation. So I, I find that um, very powerful. And then I think there's also the, um, you know, uh, we were talking before about whether, you know, is it a real ghost or is it, mm. is it a, a hallucination? Uh, mm. There's this space of play. We don't know whether, I mean, she thinks the kids, the kids see the, the ghost, mm. uh, but she's the one who sort of really connects with the ghost. Mm. And it's sort of, is it, is it her having a psychotic episode? basically. We don't know. It's left, and it's not just in that passage it's ambiguous, it's in the whole book. You get this play of is it real or is it not real? And I think that links back to that sort of tolerance for ambiguity, that sort of playing the two sides of religion, the two sides of spirituality, believing and not believing. They sort of carry through into this narrative. Well, I think um, okay, let's stop here and perhaps open to you for questions and comments. Uh, I think I, I will start just by making one comment uh, as I hear, as I sat here listening to both um, Philip and Alex. Uh, what came to my mind very strongly was the connection between William James' paper on the will to believe, which is really an extraordinary exploration about the power of the human mind to see, and there is something uh, to see what it wants to see, and of course the variations in that uh, possible experience are precisely what constitutes for psychologists something that can go in a spectrum that starts with psychotic experience and ends, say, with a fully rational appreciation of what is the case. And the way Henry James conveys to us, especially in the turn of the screw, the instability of narrative and the fact that we never know exactly what is going on in that book and who is seeing what and who is talking what. I think this is very disturbing. It's as disturbing as that story uh, Henry planned in his notes when everything was happening to him in front of his eyes his biggest fear was happening to him in front of his eyes, in fact, because he was losing the love of his life all the time. It was happening, and he never saw it. He only saw it after he died, and then it happened. So this, I think this is very disturbing. It's very frightful. And that 
fear, which is the fear of an unstable narration, is actually what William James tries to counterbalance in The Will to Believe. Because the instability of narration is all we have. So all that is left to us is the will to believe. We have to believe, because there is no firm ground. And I just want to say that, because that was, you know, it was coming to me very powerfully, I think, as you read from both of them, and I suspect the brothers being very liberal and being exposed to all kinds of religious experiences, perhaps drew from the same source to produce this very powerful assessment uh, of mind through psychology and through fiction. But questions, comments, very welcome. Let's get the... So everyone... One thing that impressed me... Is it working? Can you hear? Yes. I think... Um, Can everyone hear? Yes. In uh, the variety of religious experience is, is how respectful he is of these very, very different... You know, some are bordering on the lunatic experiences, but he is always very, very generous in his interpretation whereas Henry seems to be much more cynical and sarcastic I don't know whether you would agree that that was a fair um, Yes, I mean it's partly that we've, we've taken the, the most uh, well the, 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 the Bostonians is, is a particular period of Henry's life and, and he's not mainly dealing with the you know, he's not really interested in the you know the possibility of immortality. He's interested in this social milieu in which these practices, uh, you know, go on. So, um, uh, and in fact, I, uh, I nearly, uh, I was going to read out um, in 1906. Um, William James's wife went to a séance with Mrs. Piper, uh, and Mrs. Piper um, transmitted a message for Henry uh, from their mother, um, who, who had died. 20 years earlier um, second time rector who I think was the um, you know the sort of figure in the you know they connect with some uh, fi- figure rector said Mary which was the mother's name repeats her message to Henry he must be anxious no more for the end shall be as he desires <laughs> and she, she transmitted this message to him and, and, and James, Henry James became intrigued uh, by it uh, Alice uh, Williams' wife says, uh, William remains unmoved and unconvinced, but though I cannot well prove my faith, I believe those voices express in an imperfect and far-off way the consciousness and the love of the departed. So Mrs. William James is, is a, a believer. Um, uh, and um, William adds a, a comment to this letter from Alice, uh, from his, to his wife. Um, what it all means, I don't know. But it means at any rate that the world that our normal consciousness makes use of is only a fraction of the whole world in which we have our being. Mm. Uh, And then Henry, uh, though sceptical in the Bostonians, um, writes back, uh, this is seven months later, um, I seem to gather that Mrs. Piper, the medium, is coming out to England uh, and he wants to find out where she is. Ever since that message you sent me in the spring, I've had such a desire for the possibility of something further, even to the degree of an obsession. Um, so he's uh, Henry also is ambivalent um, 
Mm. He's not just satirical about it. In fact, um, in 1910, uh, he writes an essay called Is There a Life After Death, which is um, an extraordinary piece of work. Part one, the answer is no, there is no life after death. Part two, the answer is there has to be life after death. It's... um, uh, I think... uh, William, who wrote the varieties of religious experience, I think you're right, he was very generous. Um, and I think this is, at that time, his, pra- his strong pragmatism comes later. There was a sort of, he, he, he wrote a, a very good paper on uh, radical empiricism. And he, he, he got, started to get close to what we'd now call sort of phenomenology. Um, where he said he was kind of going through a lot of philosophical turmoil, and like what exists and what doesn't exist. And in, in a sort of radical empiricism, what exists is what you can sense now. Right? Absolutely sensual experience in the present is what exists. And then part of that experience of the now might be a memory of the past or a dream of the future. And in a sense, that's more real because that's your experience. Your immediate experience is the, the fulcrum of reality, if you like. It's where the subjective and objective are not even separate yet. Anything we know about the objective world is pulled out of experience. But experience has the subjective in it as well. So it's kind of pre-subject and object. He says that's where we begin. And and so he's developing this sort of philosophical standpoint. And I think from there, you see then the title, Varieties of Religious Experience. It's not not a, a study in religions or whether there's a religion or what causes it's the experience it's like the phenomenology of people who claim to have religious experiences and that's what I think enables this sort of open mindedness because it's just an experience he's not judging what caused it so much I don't, he's not always clear on this but I think in, if, if we were to clarify his mission it's, it's strictly a psychology of religious experience whatever that's called um, and he, he sort of says the unconscious is part of this and, and so on um, I do think there's a point, though. There's a sort of critical edge in what you said as well, that um, James just kind of takes these extraordinary stories and goes, yeah, there we go, you know, a transformation. Uh, whereas, so it's very textual. It's actually a lot of evidence. It's a lot mm. of excerpts in the book. Uh, and if... And he experiments uh, with drugs as well. He, he does experiment yeah, with he drugs. He experiments with drugs <laughs> to yes. try... There's, uh, there's very funny paper on finding... Finally, understanding the absolute in Hegel yes, under I, I the influence of some kind of drug, <laughs> he said, "I got it now, yes. finally." But he had taken, I don't yeah. know, it was some uh, nitrous uh, oxide. Nitrous oxide, oxide. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it's, and, and he wrote this paper on on Hegelisms or yeah. something like that. Yes, he, the, uh, I have it here. So the, 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 this is earlier, this is a much earlier uh, William James where he wrestled with some of the philosophical issues. So this is really when he begins to develop his own philosophy and breaks away from the rationalists who I spoke about earlier and the, the sort of begins to carve out his own, own view. And he's written this paper on uh, Hegelian, Hegelia, Hegelisms um, where Hegel argues for a sort of absolute consciousness and awareness, the world becoming aware of itself and you gain this sort of somewhat God's eye point of view it's a grand vista scheme and uh, William James and the link here is he's trying to build, build the world up from experience from something much more micro he's not into the big vistas you know he's not into the grand narratives he's into just like what is there here it's a very local uh, philosophy his radical empiricism 
And he writes this critique of Hegel's absolute. And then he, at the end, there's this note. So at the end of the manuscript, note. Since the manuscript of the preceding article was committed to the editor's hands, I have made some observations on the effects of nitrous oxide gas intoxication, which have made me understand better than ever before both the strength and the weakness of Hegel's philosophy. I strongly urge others to repeat the experiment, which, with pure gas, is short of harmless enough. The effects will, of course, vary with different individuals, just as they vary in the same individual from time to time. But it is probable that in the former case, uh, as in the latter, a generic resemblance will obtain. With me, as with every other individual whom I have heard, the keynote of the experience is the tremendously exciting sense of an intense metaphysical illumination, i.e. sort of Hegel's great vista. Truth lies open to the view, in depth beneath depth, of almost blinding evidence. The mind sees all the logical relations of being with an apparent subtlety and instantaneity, which is normal, which its normal consciousness offers no parallel. Only as sobriety returns, the feeling of insight fades, and one is left staring vacantly at a few disjointed words and phrases, as one stares at a cadaverous-looking snow peak from which the sunset glow has just fled. So this... He was traveling. Yeah. So, so we see there, I mean, the William James's kind of open-mindedness and exploratory spirit um, venturing out there. And he's, he's really, you know, he's searching for experiences. Um, and in, in the, the excerpts in the varieties of religious experience, he's willing, he's, he's sort of searching in them for something. But I would say if, if, if students here, PhD students, were to analyze qualitative data with the same lack of critical distance as he has, I would be quite upset. Yes. Don't get uh, He's telling <laughs> don't get ideas. Yeah. That's not how you <laughs> analyze qualitative idea. data, but it is one of the first examples of a kind of attempt to really be empirical about lots of qualitative data. And he just documents loads of it, pages and pages, unanalyzed, and no critical distance. Why did this founder of a religion, you know, tell a story of transformation. Well, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why they tell that story. But he doesn't, he doesn't go there. He just takes it at face value. There is a question there. Thank you. I'm just wondering about how this concept that William James had about the divided self this this um, second self fits in with Jung and the kind of first, and, in other words, a sort of superficial first person and the um, unconscious second self. I'm, I think I've got. Uh, I'm, I'm wondering date-wise and also just what the influence was. Yeah. So. Uh William James is thinking about a lot of this from really 1890 to 1900, and Freud's interpretation of dreams is around 1900. Um, so it's it's all before, mm. yeah, it's early. It's um, Freud. And there is uh, the unconscious plays a, a large role in the varieties of religious experience. So in that meeting of the world and the subject, but really I think he wants to see it as just experience before they're separate. Um, 
there is the unconscious. And the unconscious, I think, for William James is there because he has to explain why someone who's got two selves uh, and is intention is in intention. So the the, dial, the 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 sort of divided self is is unresolved. They're twice born. Why all of a sudden is there a flip? and they go one way. Why do they have a conversion experience? So he's trying to explain how that, does that happen. And one of his explanations is a sort of things are happening unconsciously, which weaken the links between certain ideas, and then it just flips. It's that transition of consciousness he's trying to explain. And so he does invoke a sort of unconscious. But, I, I mean, he doesn't, you know, Carl, Carl Jung's archetypes and so on, he doesn't, there's no, no, nothing like that, I don't think. And in, when he's theorizing transitions of consciousness, it's quite a different unconscious to Freud, even. It's not a, a sexually driven kind of unconscious or repress and repressed, even. It's just things we're not aware of. Deeply, we're not, it's a, awareness for him would be a small ice, tip of the iceberg. But I th- I, if I can just add a brief comment, I think it's very interesting to observe how uh, William James went on to influence all psychologists all, and how many of his concepts appear again and again and again in psychological science to this day, both because of his tremendous capacity for listening to human experience as it happens raw human experience and trying to make sense of that and for the uh, insights he produced with his own science. But uh, I think the listening to experience became a major, uh, a major mark of all psychology. And um, do you want to make a comment? Uh, no? Or can, there is a guess, let's. Uh, thank you. Um, I'm also quite interested in this will to believe aspect coming from William James. And one way I thought that Henry James might have been exploring it in his novels is this story that he repeats again and again of a wealthy lady who is seduced by a treasure hunter looking for her money. And I think the way that the, the wealthy lady is presented as willing herself to believe in this it's quite mm. interesting because mm. it shows, on the one hand, the exploitation that's going on mm. of belief, but on the other hand, the kind of benefit which is bestowed on this person whose life is often quite miserable. Um, and the mm. way that these stories often end is quite ambiguous. So for in, uh, if you take Washington Square to begin with, that mm. one may be less so yep. because the main character, whatever, Catherine Sloper, Mm. Um, ends up just miserable and <coughs> resentful and not wishing to see her seducer again. But in Portrait of a Lady or Wings of the Dove, we're much, less un- much more unclear about whether the person who's been seduced, who's come to believe in the seducer, has not actually gained from this. I wonder mm. whether that would be agreed with. Mm. Uh, yes, I mean, I'm not, I'm not quite sure I'd accept that account of the end of... Catherine Sloper at the end of Washington Square. I mean, she, I, I mean, she certainly doesn't want to see the suitor again. I mean, and in a sense, I mean, uh, she, she's going to be a spinster for life. But, but, I, but I, mean, I think it's very interesting the pattern you point out. And I hadn't quite thought of it in those terms. But, you, but you're right that uh, I suppose with Isabel Archer, she, I mean, the, she becomes a lady through the process of disillusion 
illusion and then disillusion, doesn't it? Doesn't she? Uh, and she has her life ahead of her at the end, but we don't know where she's going. Uh, it's you know, extraordinary, open-ended. I mean, I suppose the the culmination is the golden bowl, in which uh, at the end the heroine, having been in a way deceived, in a way deceived by uh, Amerigo, wins him back within the marriage so that, that it's a sort of triumphant version um, I mean I think there's a case for seeing that as, as having a different taking everything one step further than James ever had before um, uh, but uh, yes I mean certainly the um, I mean the, the process of transformation that, that Alex was talking about I mean that those ways in which people suddenly realise that their entire marriage is built on these lies and their entire life is built on a lie um, uh, that that obviously is crucial to the way these things, those those stories work. Yeah, but just just to support that last comment, though, I do think it's um, in. Uh, I remember a comment in um, the Wings of the Dove. That some someone says it may be Kate Croy. I don't know who. Um, that um, when Aunt Maud picks you up, um, it may be. For a quality that not even you uh, have have yet discerned, but mm-hmm. believe me, you know, it, it then be, it, it sort of transforms, but also redeems mm-hmm. the person. The Aunt Maud has yes. this has this uncanny sense of who is going to be, you know, um, fashionable, or who's mm-hmm. going to be interesting, or who's going to make a good match, or what, mm-hmm. and that other people don't know, and not even the people themselves know. But when once again, mm-hmm. Aunt, so Aunt Maud both exploits, but also in a sense redeems. Her victims, mm. as it were, mm. it seems to me. Mm. Yeah. That's, yes. I, is that right? I don't know. Well, yes, I, just a yeah, no, I, th- I think that, that, that probably is right. And, I mean, I, sp- I was think, just thinking maybe in The Ambassadors that Strether, although he's mistaken in idealising the situation he finds and they're lying to him and he goes along with it. But, I mean, in a way, he also transforms what he's... the situation, doesn't he? I mean, that by being taken for something better than they are... Yes. I mean, maybe not Chad, but Madame de Viennet, in a way, is ennobled. I think this is one thing where Henry James has an advantage by virtue of being a writer over William James, Mm. because William James is always looking for the beyond, the bit of mystery, you know, beyond the the drugs or the religion or the seance or whatever. He's trying to push the boundaries and discover the mysteries. But whenever he does, he has to describe them, and he sort of kills them in describing them. Whereas, well, well, he does, I mean, he has these wonderful descriptions, like, you know, trying to turn on the light to see the darkness. Mm. You know, these sort of, you you see him, he's always grasping after things, and then when he he sort of describes it, it never quite lives up. He's very good at describing things, but I think he always has a sense that there's something more than his own descriptions. Whereas what Henry James gets to do, and I think is brilliant, is he introduces you to this sort of slice of life and these characters with all their complexities, and it unfolds, and then it just sort of stops. And you, Mm. you don't quite know who won, who lost... Uh, how did their life do? There's no happy ever after. It's just mm. kind of, and you're wondering, you want to know more. You want to know, is this a ghost or isn't it a ghost? Was it a hallucination, yeah. wasn't it? Or in Portrait of the Lady, you know, like w- what happens after? Um, and that's the real world. A pluralistic world is a world where you only have a tiny slice. 
that's what James realized. You know, that it's, there's no God's eye vista where you see it all. So a traditional narrative which says this is how it began, that's the causal explanation, and this is how it ends, is a kind of God's, inter- God's eye view of, of human life. But Henry James brings us into social life from the middle, from the inside, and gives you a little peek <laughs> at this complexity and then pulls it away. Yeah, and, and I suppose, well, I think William and his thinking is is there as well but when he reads Henry's mm. fiction he's always complaining about how he can't understand it and how it doesn't end properly and, and so, well actually at the ending of uh, The Tragic Muse he, uh, he says um, the ending as is usual with you uh, is, is, it loses itself in the sand uh, but then he says but I suppose actually that is the way things happen in life yeah. so he yeah. kind of has to acknowledge all the time that this is really his own sets of things he just doesn't like it in novels yes. um, and yeah. most of the novels, I think, when they end, they end with an open, you know, the end of the Bostonians yes. is the yes. one that, that final sentence that you uh, think yes. uh, something is going to be... Uh, it is to be feared that in the union into which she was entering, about to enter, these were not the last tears she would shed. Uh, what an end. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um, and, uh, yeah. No, he's very good yes. at endings. Very, very good at oh. actually leaving things hanging yeah. so that that, yeah. uncert- that uncertainty that William mm. talked about turns up in the novels. Mm. Uh, you know, you can spot them. But maybe there there's something, there's always something left hanging in social life, but science hasn't got a discourse for dealing with that. Mm. Science is a discourse of this is what happened and that's why it happened and that's how it ended. But Alex, wasn't that William greatest contribution to a psychological science to make us realize that we've got to deal with it. I think he does it at a philosophical level, but whenever, when he tries to theorize, like his stream of consciousness mm. or his, you know, he's looking for a definitive answer with the seances. He keeps pushing it to the limit, but then when he, he looks for closure, even though he knows there's no closure, I think. Um, philosophically, though, he would definitely say there's no closure. But in his life, he actually looks for closure. Does he? He's upset when he doesn't believe in the seance because it doesn't close his life. He wants it all wrapped up, but it doesn't. Well, I would take... There is... There was a question there, yes. so let's take one. Yes, yes, yes. That's not, that's not a problem. Yeah. It'll only make me feel worse. We mentioned seduction as transformation, and I'm wondering if there isn't a way of looking at transformation as seduction. It's a seduction that the artistic brother achieves with the power of his words, but the scientific brother, he can't bring himself to be seduced, he can't allow himself to be seduced by the ring. Is is there something Mm. going on there? Mm. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's the will to believe, isn't it? He, he wants to believe, but he, he, as a scientist, he needs, yeah. He, he's not willing to let go. It's not, not in his job description to let go. He's a professor yeah. at Harvard. He can't just... <laughs> so, but I think there's a real part of him. It's, it's not just sort of conformist pressure. I think he, William James would do what... He's, he's not that kind of person. I mean... Uh, this is where his own concept of the kind of divided self and the twice-born, he is both. I, and I, I think it's wrong to try and typify James. There's a lot of, like, did he believe in these seances or didn't he? 
if you enter William James's personality through his own psychology, it's both. And it's not a problem. It's your problem if a logical contradiction upsets you. His world was pluralistic, you know? Mm. Mm. I suppose you could also see it as that it's 1909 when he sees the ring move at the seance after years and years of going to seances where there was no satisfactory evidence. And it's a little bit like the beast in the jungle, isn't it? That it's, yeah. it's too late. You know, that he's lived his entire life as if, you know, there's lots of doubt. But suddenly he's, you know, he's seen it. But, but you can't change your life and... I mean, also, I suspect there must be some very sophisticated way in which they were moving the ring without his having worked yes. it out. I mean, I don't know. Um, magnets was what I immediately thought. Um, well, on that note, and talking of closures, we will have to close. Uh, thank you very much all for coming, and thank you to our panel this evening for yet uh, more very interesting tales about the two Jameses. Thank you and good evening.